Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back in warm Toowoomba. I know everyone, when I talk in Queensland, they tell, you're telling me you've moved to Toowoomba, everyone goes, oh, that's the cold bit. Uh, I spent a bit of time down in Sydney during the week, and I can tell you, you're warmer than Sydney, you're much warmer than the town that I grew up in, you're much warmer than the town that I moved from to move up here. Um, but the one time I really noticed that, it was a couple of weekends ago, we went down to the Gold Coast in between Gold Coast and here, it was actually just a really cold weekend here, it was a dramatic change, and that's when I thought, ah... Now I can see why people who live down the case say Toowoomba's cold. Um, not sure if Paul mentioned it uh, during prayer time, but um, Sarah and Kenzie are not here, or as and Laura and Lauren have gone to go be with her. Um, Kenzie helped herself to the liquid Panadol this morning, but we don't know if she had an unhelpful quantity or not, so Sarah's gone to take her um, to the hospital to get her checked. So uh, Miller's here and she's over in Christ, but um, Sarah thought, so there's no signs that it's had any adverse effect on Kenzie, and Sarah doesn't know what quantity she's taken, um, if any, um, but she's just going to get that checked. So, so you can pray for that as we gather together. Okay, we're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts, and this is not about what Steve says, this is about God's word and what he wants to communicate to us. So let's come before him, depending upon him in prayer. Heavenly Father... It's a wonderful thing that we can hold in our hands a book that is your very word, the very things that you desired to communicate to the people you created, that tells you everything about your plan from creation to the completion of time. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown us how it is we can be in a right relationship with you, even though our sin had, had torn us and broken that relationship and access that we had to you. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus has dealt with the problem of our sin. He's borne our punishment on our behalf. And Lord, as this has been the, the greatest news that any one of us could ever hear, Lord, you have also called us to share of that good news and how to live in a way that proclaims the excellencies of our Lord. So as we look to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak through it, that we would hear the very things that you had wanted it to be heard as we look at this passage. And Lord, may we be changed to love you, to serve you, to make you known, to enjoy you as we see you and your wonderful character and your dealings with people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you'll notice there, I've titled today's sermon, The Church Scattered. Now, as you heard the reading, under persecution, the church was scattered. And I wonder, in a general sense, when you hear the word scattered, do you think of that as being a positive thing or a negative thing? In our household, if Kenzie was to get into pantry, which she regularly does get into our pantry, often the cereal's just at a really reachable height and we have cereal scattered. Now, we don't tend to view upon that as being a particularly positive thing. But if you were to grow up in a farming household, particularly a crop farming household, then the concept of scattering might not only seem like a good thing, but a necessary thing to, to carry out the work of farming. So when we read about and talk about the church being scattered, which category does it fall into? Is it a good thing? 
or is it a serial label of floor type of thing? But I want you to put yourself in the, the mindset of a first century Christian during this time that Luke is writing here. Now you think you've heard the best news you could ever hear. Growing up as a Jew, you've been offering sacrifices to deal with your sin because you knew you weren't right with God, having to do them over and over and over again because you know you keep doing the wrong thing before God. Yet Jesus comes as the final sacrifice to deal with completely once for all. And not only has he dealt with that, he was raised from the dead and hundreds have seen him risen from the dead. And I think... This has got to be the best news. Everyone must want to lap this up. Who would resist? Both Jesus and the apostles have shown that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the hopes of the Old Testament scriptures. Everything pointed to him. So you must conclude, surely, if it's so clearly this pointed forward to Jesus, this is everything we'd hope for, surely all Jews must become Christians. But that wasn't the case, was it? Within a few years of the resurrection, we see some positive responses and we see some negative responses. On the positive side, Jesus has gathered his followers and says, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we saw what was initially a gathering of 120 dedicated followers of Jesus Christ at this point in time, in the passing of a few years, we're well beyond 10,000. But then on the other hand, you have the religious leaders who don't hear it as being good news, what is being said about Jesus, who actually forbid the apostles to speak about Jesus who have them flogged, who have them put in jail. And last week, we saw it go even that extra step. We saw the first ever martyr as Stephen is dragged outside the city and he is stoned for proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament hopes. Part of you might be thinking, the people who should be best equipped to understand the scriptures should be the religious leaders, yet their response to this message is to think it is so blasphemous that people should die who teach it. I wonder if they were ever tempted. Did we get it right? Ever tempted to think, did we get it right? Is it worth following Jesus when this is the response which happens and a response which is predominantly led by the religious leaders? As you read through the book of Acts, the resounding answer is yes. They never for one moment considered whether or not following Jesus was the right thing to do. Not only is the church growing, so also is the opposition. And in our passage today, it really begins to ramp up. And if you were reading it for the first time and you didn't know the whole story, you could be tempted to ask, is this going to be the straw? that breaks the camel's back. So we're looking at verses 1 to 3, the persecution and scattering. We've seen verses 4 to 8, that God's people are a proclaiming people. No doubt you would have had a few questions raised about the idea of how and when do we receive the Spirit based on what you saw in the reading and who is fit for ministry. 
So beginning with the question, or looking at the details of the persecution and the scattering. Now last week we were introduced to Saul for the first time. It says, as they went to stone Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now a lot of people were of the perception that Saul was the predominant leader in the opposition to Stephen. So it's no surprise that our reading we've had today begins with the words, and Saul approved of his death. In other words, the type of man Saul was, was to think that a person who proclaims Jesus as the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament hopes is so blasphemous, they deserve to be stoned and lynched. On the day of Stephen's death, that very day, the persecution intensified to the extent it says, and all of the Christians scattered, except for the apostles. It doesn't give reasons specifically why the apostles decided to, committed to stay back in Jerusalem, but all of the general everyday Christians, they scattered. Now remember back when the apostles were before the religious leaders and Gamaliel stood up and he says, now remember back in history... Now, we've had other people who've made big claims about themselves who've got following. Remember Judas and Thutis, he says? Now, they, they started to get a following. They started to say something about themselves. But in the end, they and their followers died and it came to nothing. And so Gamaliel's advice was, if this is something that comes from man, it'll come to an end. It'll come to nothing. Just let it go. But he says, if it's from God you will be found that you cannot oppose it. You cannot stop it. Now, at this point in time, I think the religious leaders are probably thinking, we're about to find out. Persecution has come. All of the general Christians have gone. They've fled. They're probably thinking, good signs. All we've got left is a few left in the town. We can knock them out. It'll come to nothing. Game over. Good night, nurse. Certainly Saul is convinced to being involved in making sure this is a certainty. It says Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There's no messing around here. There's no waiting until someone does something in a public forum that is Christian. House to house. Checking house to house. Anyone found to be naming Jesus Christ. Women, men, drag them off, take them off to prison. Now, depending on your translation, you might have ravaging or beginning to destroy, made havoc in the churches. Literally, the phrase means to lay to waste or to bring to total ruin. And it's written in the tense of what he began to do, but what he continued on going to do. In other words, Saul was committed to the complete annihilation of the church to bring it to nothing. And he's not going to stop until he achieves that goal. It's important to see the early nature of Saul, who later becomes known as Paul, in order to appreciate the miracle of his conversion. That the same man who once would stop at nothing to bring the church to complete ruin and destruction, later would be willing to risk his life time and time again to proclaim Jesus Christ and his salvation. Because knowing Jesus does completely transform their followers. Paul himself says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
So as the Christians scatter because of the persecution and Saul's got a passionate zeal to go door to door to make sure this comes to an end, is it going to destroy the church? We see God's people are by nature a proclaiming people. I love verse 4 and I want us to stop and think about it for a moment. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The ones who were scattered, who according to verse 2 was all of just the general everyday Christians. The apostles stayed back, the everyday Christians, they scattered and as they scattered because of they were being persecuted for naming Jesus Christ, they proclaimed and taught about Jesus. Now it's worth noting the apostles didn't say we're going to stay here, therefore it's your job to keep talking about Jesus where you go. Neither did the general people say, guys, the apostles have stayed behind, we better take this up in their place. What we can see here is that what was normal to them, without needing to be prompted or reminded in any sense, was to speak about Jesus wherever they went. Very clearly, the persecution did not stop the spread of the gospel. If anything, it led to the expansion of the gospel. Just as Jesus promised and said that it would do when he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel in our passage goes to Samaria, just as Jesus said it would. It's not only the geographical expansion of the gospel, but in terms of the ministers whom God works through, expands in terms of now being the ministry of the everyday people. Which in a sense shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus' mission for the church was a mission of multiplication. Now he says, go make disciples and teach them to observe and obey all of the things I commanded you. Paul says similar things in Ephesians 4 about the role to equip the saints for the works of ministry. Paul says to Timothy, these things that I've entrusted to you, entrust to faithful men in order that they might teach others. There's this supposed to be a thing of passing on multiplication. To give a more recent example of what persecution and multiplication looks like, you can look at China. In 1949, the national government was overcome by the communists and there were 637 missionaries with China Inland Mission who were all sent outside of China. And you could be tempted to ask, well, what's that going to do for the Christian church in China? If all of your missionaries are sent out, well, within four years' time, 286 of those were redeployed in areas of Southeast Asia and including Japan. But in China itself, where there were no external missionaries doing the work, the church is said to have grown and multiplied 30 to 40 times within that four-year period what it was beforehand while the missionaries there. Such was the nature of the local people, everyday Christians, taking up their responsibility ability to share about the good news of Jesus. But when we read about the church who was scattered, going out preaching the word, the word preaching probably isn't a helpful translation. Because when you hear the word preaching, you think about someone standing in front of a group of people presenting a sermon. But the word just means simply to communicate or to speak good news. It doesn't have to be something said before a group. It can be a private conversation. I'm guessing the majority of it was that nature. And I want to put it to you that every single people, 
are an evangelising people in the sense that if evangelising means to share and speak the things you believe to be good news, I'll put it to you that everybody does that. They just might have a different view of what is the good news that they pass on. You know how people, when they get a, a new baby or a grandchild or they've got the newest iPhone the day it was released, or they've just been on a holiday, you can ask them about anything at all and they'll bring it back to the thing that they love that they want to tell you about that you don't want to hear about. How's the weather? Oh, it's really good. Oh, and because of that, we had to dress our kid in this. Oh, look at this. Look how cute they look wearing this. Oh, we've just come back from this wonderful holiday. We did this and this. Oh, You need to come around and I'll show you every single photo we ever took and explain you all the funny anecdotes along the way. We do this because these are the things we love, we value, we talk about them. Jesus understood that was part of our condition. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. In other words, you can tell about anyone what they love because you speak about the things you love. And so if we naturally talk about the things that bring us joy and we value, how much more should a people who've been saved from the consequences of our own rebellion into a relationship with the living God for an eternity with him have a good news that is worth talking about? Now, while we've talked about preaching not meaning that it has to be done as communicating of good news before a crowd of people, There was certainly one person who did address the crowds, a man named Philip. Now, Philip, we've been introduced before, the week when Samuel was preaching while I was away. Philip was one of the seven men chosen in Acts chapter 6 who, when the apostles realised, we need to be devoted to prayer and to the preaching of the word. So they set aside seven men for the task of assisting and helping out the poor and waiting on tables. Philip was one of those men, as was Stephen, that we looked at last week. Philip's got something else in common with Stephen. While his role or function within the church may have been a serving, practical role, that did not in any sense take away from his understanding of his identity as a follower of Christ, which still by its nature implies that he is one who talks about Jesus. And as Philip addressed the crowds, It says they paid attention to his words and to the signs he was doing. As people were delivered as spirits, healed from sicknesses. But we see very clearly in verse 12, what brought about their salvation? As Philip taught about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It was the content which brought about the change of people's hearts to lead them towards Jesus. But it's a significant day for the gospel the day when that plan that Jesus laid out in Acts 1-8, when it goes from Jerusalem out to that next sphere into the Samaritans. Now, if you've read your Bible a little bit, and you've been, you'd be probably familiar with the fact that there's, there's some degree of tension between Jews and Samaritans. Like if you read through John's Gospel, you read in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes to the woman at the well, John says in John chapter 4 verse 9, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They've got nothing to do with them. That is the extent of the hostility. Now, it's not like schoolyard stuff where sometimes you just don't have something to do with someone, but there's no reason for it. There is a history behind it. Back when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Assyrians, 
They didn't take all of the Jewish people. There were some who were left behind. And of those who were left behind, they kind of integrated with the other people from the other natures and cultures. So from a Jewish perspective, they were looked down upon as being a mixed breed, both ethnically, but also religiously. They they took on some of the ideas of the surrounding nations and their religions. And not only that, they also built themselves their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And they only believed in the first five books of Moses as being the written scripture. So the Jewish leaders would have been shocked when Jesus went into Samaria and he's speaking to a woman. They would have been even more shocked to see that the person who Jesus makes his clearest statement about the fact that he's a Messiah is a Samaritan woman. But we shouldn't be shocked that there is a plan to go outside the bounds of Jewish people and outside the bounds of Jerusalem because God's always had a plan for all nations. Remember his promises back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Through your offspring, which Paul in Galatians 3.16 says that offspring is singular, which is Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this Jesus commissioned that the gospel must spread to Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. So now that the gospel is bearing fruit in Samaria, something new and significant is happening. Have you noticed when something new happens, like if a new shop opens in Toowoomba, they do something to gather attention so people know that we are here, something new is going on. Whether it's giving away 500 free sausages at a Bavarian beer cafe, or it's face painting, or a particular things going on, a petting zoo. They do something to say, I want to get your attention. We are here, something is happening in your midst. And something is drawing attention here. Not only is it Philip, who's not an apostle, who is being authenticated as a messenger of the gospel by producing his signs and wonders, but I have no doubt that when you heard the reading, part of you was kind of like the... How does this whole receiving of the Spirit thing work out? It doesn't sound like what I would expect. So let's have a look at verses 14 to 17. How and when do we receive the Spirit? There's no doubt about how our people are saved. In verse 12, it's made abundantly clear. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus, they were baptised both men and women. So what brought about their conviction and brought them to Christ was the preaching of Philip about Jesus and his kingdom. And they were seen to be believers, they were baptised. So they're Christians, right? This is what makes reading verses 14 to 17 sound a little bit odd. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God... They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. As you read that, you've got to think, this sounds like things are happening in two stages. They've responded to the Gospel, they've believed, they've even been baptised, yet... It says they hadn't received the Spirit. Peter and John came down and lay hands on them in order that they might. Now, I put it to you, whenever you come across a passage 
that it seems odd or out of place with what you see in the rest of the scriptures, you need to ask some sensible questions. You need to ask questions like, does this event describe what should be the normal practice that we should copy and replicate in the future? Or is there something unusual about this as being a a once-off occurrence that's not to be repeated? And if so, why is it different? Now, we need to be careful that we don't build our doctrines upon a description of an event that happens once, particularly if that conflicts with other things that the Bible says. Let me give you an example. Jesus encounters a man who is blind, spits on the ground, takes the mud and rubs it on the man's eyes. Now there's an event where you think, oh, that sounds a little bit unusual. So to ask those questions of it, do we think this is unusual, this is one specific occasion not to be replicated, or should we take it as something that we are to learn from and follow? Should I come across people who are blind and follow in those steps? Should we say goodbye to the Fred Hollows Foundation and hello to the Steve Adams Hockaloogie Foundation? I can assure you the Steve Adams Hockaloogie Foundation is not going to be established. It was not being put forward as something that we are to replicate and to practice. But some churches have concluded there's a reason for a two-stage salvation, as though this should be the biblical norm. From the Roman Catholic perception, they believe the idea that you are baptised as a child results in the removal of original sin. Yet their idea of confirmation is that as a bishop lays hand on someone who they perceive to be the successors of the apostles, that at that point that people receive the Spirit. Now it takes place and looks different in other different circles. Some Pentecostal churches have the idea that you are saved as you trust in Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, you must have someone lay hands on you in order to receive the Spirit, or otherwise you won't have the Holy Spirit. Now, some people try to avoid the difficulty of the question. They say, as far as I can see in the rest of the Scriptures, it's a once event, they all happen together. So they conclude that maybe the initial response of the Samaritans wasn't genuine saving faith. It wasn't until Peter and John. But the problem with that is that when you look at the language, it's the exact same language of the response of the people back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. There's nothing in the language that suggests anything other than they had genuinely had saving faith. And there's no evidence whatsoever that John and Peter came and corrected any teaching and say there was something lacking. Now, if I'm to say that this is a deviation from what is normal, then what does the Bible tell us is normal or just to look back earlier into the book of acts as peter presented the the message of the gospel and people will say how do we respond what do we do with this peter says to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the lord jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the holy spirit like he connects the forgiveness of sins being right with god and the reception of the spirit being a singular event Likewise, Paul, later in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, says, And when you believed, you received the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee and seal of your salvation. So if this does go against the norm, your obvious question is, why? 
Why would, why would there be something different on this occasion? And the difficult thing is the Bible doesn't give a clear answer. So in that sense, I need to say, this is what I think to be the best answer to that question, but the Bible itself does not answer it. Now remember the setting, the gospel for the first time is going outside of Jerusalem to a Samaritan people who were looked down on greatly by the Jewish people, whom they had rejected. While there's no reason to believe that they didn't have saving faith or that there was anything lacking, I think there's two reasons why God suspended the normal chain of events. Firstly, for the benefit of the Samaritans. For the benefit of the Samaritans to have the apostles endorse their salvation, to have a very clear public confirmation that they had entered into the same salvation as had done the people back at Pentecost. But also potentially for the benefit of the apostles that they could know for certain too that God was working that same salvation as he had promised amongst the Samaritans. I find it kind of humorous that John is one of the two men who gets sent along. I mean, it's not a surprise in the sense that Peter and John have been uh, very forthfront so far as we've gone through the book of Acts. But if you look in, in Luke chapter 9, there was another time when Jesus went to the Samaritans and the Samaritans didn't respond favorably. And John's response to Jesus was this, do you want me to pray to God that he might send down fire from heaven to destroy them? Yet this John is the one who comes to see God's saving work amongst these people and see God's grace towards them. But it's not just the receiving of the Spirit that is difficult in this passage. We've also got some questions about Simon. Where does he fit in? Like if you've got an ESV, I think the, the heading in the, in the paragraph says Simon believes, but people are, are perplexed. Was he genuinely a believer or not? He's introduced in verse 9 as a magician, or probably maybe a better translation might be a sorcerer. Now, there was something supernatural about it. It wasn't like my, the not-so-amazing Steve tricks that I did a number of weeks ago at the beginning of a sermon. But because of the supernatural nature of his power on display, people from high and low were gathered around him. They were fascinated. He got, he got some attention. And the way Simon's described, I think he liked that attention. I think he not only liked the attention, but he thought pretty highly of himself too. But having heard Philip speak about Jesus, all indications are that Simon too responded in faith. Although there's one little phrase there where you wonder, is his commitment to Jesus or is he just enamoured with Philip? All the language of faith is there. Simon himself believed and after being baptised, he continued with Philip and seeing signs, great miracles performed, he was amazed. So there's nothing unusual about the fact that he was amazed by the signs and wonders. Everybody was amazed. But we see he has a very strong affinity to Philip. He's, he likes what this Philip guy's about. But particularly when he sees the people receiving the Spirit by the hands of the apostles, he's like, this is some good stuff going on here. I need to add this to my bag of trips. I'm going to offer some money for this. It's another area which the Bible is a little bit silent. 
It doesn't tell us what happened when the people received the Spirit. But clearly something happened that Simon thought, this is an impressive trick I need to add to my list of things to gain attention. Now he gets rebuked by Peter, saying, you can't buy the gift of God with money. Seems that all of Simon's motives are about gaining people's attention, building a name for himself. And it's hard when you look at Peter's response to think, is Peter saying he is a believer, that Simon's a believer, or is he saying that Simon's not a believer? But there's one thing that he makes very clear. The gracious gifts of God are for the glory of God alone, never for the people who he does them through. God still does amazing things through ordinary people on a daily basis. Whether it's a sermon that dramatically changes your life, whether it's a church that's seen wonderful gospel growth, there's always going to be a temptation to want to take credit for yourself for something that you've done nothing that God alone has done. During the week I was at a conference in Sydney and the guy who was the principal at the Bible college when I studied and also uh, the guy who taught preaching when I was at Bible college spoke about a time when he was being heavily involved in the Katoomba Christian Conventions and in 1989 he was speaking at a youth convention. He could sense that as he was preaching that there was just like a stillness. People were focused on every word he had to say and as he brought and called for an appeal and a response to the gospel, a massive number of people came forward and he was on cloud nine. He was over the moon. Then he went on to tell a story to say that he did not preach an effective sermon after that day for eight years. He was so enamored, so taken up and filled by what had happened and kind of thinking, look what I've done. But for seven to eight years, he said, I couldn't preach an effective sermon to anyone. However God uses you, whatever ministry role he entrusts you with, we are dependent upon God and anything good which comes upon it, he gets the thanks, he gets the glory. Peter called Simon to pray for repentance, that he would want to seek his own attention. But Simon doesn't seem at least bit interested. That's to say, Simon doesn't care at all that he's offended God. He's like, Peter, you pray for me. I just don't want the consequences. And then the passage ends almost the way it begins. In the beginnings, you see the Christians persecuted, they scatter, and they preach the word. It ends with the apostles returning back to Jerusalem, preaching the word everywhere they go. It seems whether you're an apostle or whether you're an everyday Christian, where the God's people go, the gospel goes. So is scattering a good thing or a bad thing? There's two ways in which the Bible speaks and uses words for the word scattering. One is just like random scattering, just chucking things around for no beneficial cause, like the cereal on our kitchen floor on a regular basis. But the word that is used here is a Greek word, diaspero, which is made up of two Greek words joined together. Dia, which speaks of motion, of movement. God's people were moved as the persecution came, they were moved. 
Inspiro is a verb meaning to plant or to sow. So it's speaking of God's people were moved, they were relocated for the purposes of, of sowing and planting. They were scattered for the purpose of planting. It's helpful to understand this passage as part of God's plan that he laid forth in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, for the gospel to go to Judea, Samaria, and all to the ends of the earth. But it's also helpful for our understanding of who we are as a church. Eastgate Bible Church isn't what happens inside these four worlds on a Sunday morning. It is the people who belong to God, joined to one another, who have committed this as their home church. It's about people, not a building. We are the church on a Sunday morning. We are the church every other moment of our week. On a Sunday morning, we are the church gathered, where we come to hear from God as we look at his word, when we come sing praise to him, we come before him in prayer, when we build up and edify one another. Throughout the rest of the week, we are still the church, but we are the church scattered as we move outside of the walls to sow the good news of the gospel. This is where our passage begins and ends, where Christians go, the gospel goes. And it challenges me as I think about the implications of my own life. Could it be said that where Steve Adams goes, the gospel goes. When I moved up from Victoria and I moved up to Gorman Street here in Darling Heights, as I moved into that house, did the gospel come to Gorman Street, Darling Heights? Or am I just someone who happens to believe the gospel who lives there? It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? For a people to be a sent people to not carry out the mission for which they are sent. Now, I've always said, I will never live in a remote country town. Not because I don't like it. Actually, I romantically, I love the idea of being in a small country town. But this is the reality. If I lived in a small country town out in the middle of nowhere, I'm going to spend all my days going back and forward to the shops to buy the things that I forgot to buy. I write myself a list of things I need to buy. I check it many times while I'm at the shops. I come home and Sarah says, did you get this? And I'm like, oh, I forgot. It's usually something like the bread because I thought I've let it to last so I don't put other things on top of it and squish it. And then I don't. Sometimes I've gone to the shops for a particular reason. There was one thing in particular was the main reason I went to the shops and I come home with a whole lot of other things that weren't on the list and haven't got the thing for which I actually went to the shops for. When you go to the shops, it's probably good to actually make priority the reason you were sent to the shops. And maybe for other things, whatever they are, they can work their way around it. Then in my Christian life, the thing that I was sent here for, the thing that I was commissioned for, should get the main priority and other things that are far less important should work their way around that. But do you know what encourages me in this passage the most? This is everyday Christians doing this. We see later on in the book of Acts, there's these same people who were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. They go further than Samaria. They, they establish some big churches. But these people, everyday people, hadn't been to Bible college, weren't people of great position. 
given the early days of the church, they probably actually knew less about it than you and I did. But however much they did knew, they knew this has changed my life. This is good news that needs to be shared. This is not something I can keep to myself. And even when they know they've been persecuted, sent out from Jerusalem because of it, they never once for a moment thought, well, if this is what it does in Jerusalem, then I'm not going to tell anyone else. It's just going to come with a negative response. They went and they continued to proclaim and speak about Jesus. So often we make presumption about where the good news of the gospel might be well received and where it might not. And you know what that communicates? That communicates that the gospel is only powerful where I think it will be powerful. God can only work in people who look conducive to my perception. I had that certainly turned upside down in as one of the speakers who was at the, on the last day of the conference. Some of you may be aware of Michael Ramsden who works with Ravi Zacharias, does a lot of work in the Middle East. And he was talking about someone that he had brought to Christ in the Middle East only to find out that that person was part of Al-Qaeda and part of a significant group of suicide bombers who had just done a recent significant attack. And that person had come to Christ. Then the difficult thing came for him. This person was so excited for his friends to hear about Jesus, invited Michael to come to the next meeting of these Al-Qaeda suicide bombers, says, I want you to speak to them about Jesus. Isn't that an invitation you'd all want? And actually, Michael went there and spoke on a number of occasions. You think it's hard to speak in front of people? You try doing that one. And on the last time he was speaking there, there was a guy off over this side who he swore was just giving him the death theirs. And Michael had decided... There's an exit this way, there's an exit this way. I'm taking this one. And as he was preaching, he felt God sense to say to him, I want you to speak to that man. Who'd want to do that? Suicide bomber who looks like he hates your guts. Go and speak to that man. And he went over to speak to that man and he says, is there something you want to talk to me about? And the man cried and embraced him and says, Our nation needs to hear this. Now, that's a very abbreviated version of the story, but I'll put up in our Facebook group that that whole talk that he gave. Never underestimate the power of the gospel. Never think that it must be someone who holds particular qualifications. It's not the qualifications that makes the gospel change people's life. It's the fact that it's God's message about what he's done that he makes effect. And so my prayer for us is God would transform us more and more to be like this. We've already seen things happening in our church as we've started to think about these things. But we pray that God would continue to multiply this in our church and around the world. Heavenly Father, it's encouraging as we look to the beginnings of the early church. People who didn't have access to the scriptures anywhere near to the extent to which we do. Yet with the little that they did knew, they knew this was something they had to share. This is something we cannot withhold. And Lord, we just pray that you would so work in our heart to remind us of who we are and who you've called us to be. 
that you have moved us, you have planted us here in Toowoomba, you have planted us in our neighbourhoods, you have planted us in our workplaces, you've planted us in our social circles for the reason that we might sow. Lord, I pray that you would not only give us a boldness to accept who you, you have called us to be, but a boldness that faithfully depends upon you and expects that your gospel will still will bring a good fruit, even amongst people who we think most unlikely. And we thank you that you still are the God who is living and active in this world. Lord, out of our love and concern for those whom we live and interact with on a daily basis, let us have that interaction where we, where we feel called by you to go to people and to talk to them about Jesus. And may they find hope and faith in you and all to the glory of you and never to the instrument who you choose to use. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's your passage for next week's sermon if you're the sort of person who wants to read in advance. If you're not, forget it. Now we're moving to a time of communion which was supposed to be later.